Goodwin can go as go. Like a fourth jump, and he just kept going. We scored seven bears. All the way through the yeah. tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Out, out past the Zamboni <laughs> tunnel. <laughs> well, fucker probably need to go change clothes. He just. No. He's gonna, next scene. Off in Vietnam or whatever yeah, yeah, next Whatever was. next was. Yeah, exactly. Apparently in that book, he uh, went to the moon or he went to space or something. Because that movie is based off a book. Mm-hmm. But they picked out the most unbelievable things. Because mm-hmm. Forrest Gump ain't, ain't no astronaut. Sure, I could see him being a ping pong champion, a yeah. good football player, a good soldier, a shrimp magnate. Well, Purple Heart, right? Did he get a Purple, purple Heart? Purple Heart shot in the butt. Yep. Showed LBJ's butt. Damn, mom was a prostitute. She wasn't a prostitute. She fucked that teacher to get him in there. Like, oh, okay. She only fucked when it was... Because remember, she fucked a doctor, too. Oh, yeah. She was a bit of a... And Jenny was definitely Yo. a whore. But they say you fall in love with your mother Ooh. or something, so... Ooh. I guess he just likes them That's hoe bags. De- yeah, <laughs> he liked those hoe bags. She could have given him AIDS, man. I think that was the what they was thinking. Yeah. Alluring, too. Yeah. Man, bro, you don't want to get AIDS, bro. Not unless you're magic. Well, you don't got AIDS. <laughs> exactly. Not anymore. And now he's fine. Super. Perfectly bro. fine. Bro, getting big and everything. Google Pixel deleting images and stuff. That's what he's doing. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Ooh, episode of uh, the Bubble Butt Podcast. X, 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 X. Today, my name's Adam. Yeah, A-Bomb. That one's Herschel. H-Bomb. And uh, the bombs brothers today, we're going for a nice, juicy part two. The response to 10 Rillington Place has been great so far. Yeah, lots of Instagram absolutely. messages, lots of emails. People have people they liked that one, yes, sir. and I like that. Tune in for he said, I like that, but keep a hey, keep tuning in to the episode of Bumble Butt Podcast X. When last we met, Reg Christie had been the star witness against Timothy Evans in the Crown's case of the murdered baby, Geraldine Evans. Mm-hmm. Mm, that baby was murdered. Oh, yeah. Beryl Evans, his wife, was also murdered, but Tim was not on trial for that. Mm. The jury found him guilty after 40 minutes' deliberation, and Tim was sent quietly to the gallows that very year on March 9th, 1950. 40 minutes, huh? 40 minutes' deliberation. I wonder, that's like a fucking dinner. Yeah, that's not even dinner, bro. that's not even enough yeah. for a lunch break. It's not, bro. You got paid for a whole hour for that 30, 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All was quiet for Reg Christie back at 10 Rillington Place. Mm-hmm. Mr. Kitchener, the tenant on the second floor, had finally come back from vacation and promptly moved out. The Evanses on the third floor were all dead, and some Jamaicans had moved into that unit. So he caught wind of all this shit while he was on vacation or something, or? I think he was going on vacation to determine where he was going to move. Okay, 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 okay. Like, it it was unrelated. Okay, okay. Kitchener, like, avoided all of the insanity. (laughs) That's good. Hell yeah. (laughs) And then he came back and got the fuck out. Yep. I wonder, did he hear, though? Probably. Okay. And he was probably, man, this place is just getting stinkier and stinkier. That was his neighbor, so he's like, what's going on? Probably tape everywhere, caution tape. Jamaicans had moved into the third floor unit, 
Mm-hmm. And it was time for Ethel and Reg to go apartment hunting. <laughs> Ethel found the Jamaicans detestable and didn't want to share an outhouse with them. Damn. Another reason it was time for a scenery change, Christy was complaining more and more about his physical ailments. Shortly after Tim's trial, Reg fell into a deep depression and would lose 28 pounds. Damn. He lost his job at the post office because of his admissions to old crimes during the trial. He would visit his two doctors 33 times in eight months for stress-related reasons. Damn. Boy, you need to go take some kind of pills somewhere. He couldn't get his old already. Probably already fucked, though. His favorite pills are, you know, killing women, I guess. (laughs) And that's a hard pill to swallow, (laughs) ain't it? (laughs) That's his fucking Valium, and he chokes it down. Ooh. Don't you love that shit? Choking it down, and then it helps you. You ever have one of the big-ass horse pills, bro? Yeah. Why do they make those? Why? I don't know. Just give me, just tell me to take three of them, or just put it up my ass. You know what no, I mean? No, I just I could swallow it. I'd rather have a suppository than choke on a suppositories. Giant pill. Do work faster. Though. Hell yeah, it goes right up your butt. Yeah, you gonna be instantly less. That's why uh, you can't put booze in your butt because that shit'll get your ass. It'll kill you and toast it before it kills you. Probably that's how alcohol poisoning. You'll be wasted and drunk, and, and probably dead. before you know it too. It'll be too late. Your butthole doesn't have the filters yeah. that it <laughs> does kid, going yeah, the other yeah. way, the right Through way. Through the kidneys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Christy briefly found work with the British Road Services, and mm-hmm. his mental state improved. Soon, however, he gave notice, saying he'd found a better job, but that was a lie. He just wanted free time away from his wife. He pined for the days when Ethel would go to visit her relatives in Sheffield for weeks at a time. Christy had dirt to do, and he mm. couldn't do it with his wife constantly nope. underfoot. You can't, can't do nothing with your wife there, bro. No. You can't beat your dick. No. You <laughs> no, no. He even said that faster than, said than the killings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> on Thursday, December 11th, Ethel went to watch TV with her pal Rosie. Mm. On the 12th, she took laundry down to the laundromat and appeared to all who saw her bright and cheery. Oh. She never once mentioned to anyone that she was about to take a trip. After the 12th, she was never seen again. Mm. On Monday, Christy put a letter in the mail written by Ethel to her sister in Sheffield. He had changed the date from the 10th when it was written to the 15th, writing at the bottom that they'd run out of envelopes at home, so Reg had to wait until Monday to mail it from work. (laughs) Christy then told Ethel's friends in the neighborhood that they had found a great place back in Sheffield, and Ethel had moved along first to get the house all set up. A large percentage of the neighborhood was crestfallen and a bit offended that Ethel would just peace out without even saying goodbye. Hell yeah, because everybody probably liked the motherfucking ass. Everyone liked Ethel. She was cheery. She was nice. Hell yeah. Make you a pie or something. Yeah, dude, somebody like that just don't just say they're not finna bail. Yeah, they're not just gonna move. Like, I'm not just gonna move to Texas without telling people. Yeah, not Texas. Or anywhere. I don't know why I picked Texas. Reg began sprinkling his apartment with a strong disinfectant, and neighbors began to notice the pungent aroma. In January 1951, Reg sold all his furniture, as Mm. well as Ethel's watch and wedding ring. Mm. He slept on an old mattress on the floor, and only kept three chairs, one of which was very important to him, as we'll discuss. Mm Mm-hmm. To stay afloat financially, he forged his wife's signature on her bank account and trained it. He stayed in his unfurnished apartment well into March, now not even bothering to open letters from friends and relatives asking where the heck Ethel Mm -hmm. was. One day, Reg noticed a woman named Mrs. Riley outside looking for a place to rent. What a coincidence, Reg said. Mm. He was looking to sublet his space for a year so he could go be with his wife in Sheffield. Christy collected three months' rent and cash up front, Mm. 
borrowed a suitcase from the Rileys, and hit the road. She was out of here, Jack. The couple weren't even in the ground floor apartment for one night when the real landlord showed up and explained that Reg had no legal right to rent that apartment <laughs> and to please grab their things and vacate That's immediately. up, bro. Both the Rileys and the landlord were out of the money. The apartment smelled so fucking bad that the couple were almost relieved to lose the money just in order <laughs> not back. to stay there. <laughs> you do that bad. I wonder how bad it smelled, bro. Like dead rats. It's up humans. Yep, dead humans. The landlord now only had one of his three apartments rented. He allowed the Jamaican, Beresford Brown, to use the kitchen on the ground floor since it had the best appliances. Mm -hmm. Brown started deep cleaning the place because he couldn't stand to be in there for longer than five minutes. Mm. Beresford wanted to listen to the radio while he cooked, so he decided to install a shelf in the kitchen. He didn't have a stud finder, so he started knocking on the walls looking for one. Strangely, the wall he wanted to hang the shelf on didn't have any studs. It seemed to be freestanding with no support. <laughs> Beresford pulled away the wallpaper and found a door that was shut tight. He shone his light through the crack and saw what he thought was a naked woman sitting cross-legged. Well, I gotta get in there. He, he immediately <laughs> called police. <laughs> I gotta get in there. We gotta get in there. He was a Jamaican after all, so. <laughs> Jamaican me crazy. Man. Yeah, Jamaica me not want to be a... Speaking of Jamaica, oh, I can do a little signal boosting here. Yeah, go ahead. One of my co-workers is in something called the One Love Brigade, which is a charity. Every year, they ship a shipping container down to Jamaica, and they hand out bicycles to yeah, that's tight. everybody. And last year, with everything going on, they couldn't get a shipping container, yeah. so instead, they shipped in a shitload of food and handed out like 700 bags of food. Not yeah, because guess what? It's third world down there. Mm -hmm. So, One Love Brigade. Go to their Facebook. Right now they have a contest. If you donate $25, you'll be entered into a raffle for a fly-in vacation mm -hmm. to Canada for two to this resort where you will catch the biggest fish. Yeah, the trip is valued trip? at three thousand dollars. All it needs twenty-five dollar donation. Now, One love brigade. Look them up. If you don't want this trip, donate anyway. Yeah, get these <laughs> yeah. little 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 kids some bikes. Yeah. Yeah. It's poor That's and tight. destitute as yeah. fuck down there. It's a third world country. Yeah. Chief Beater Beverage was the first on the scene oh, with Beater. several officers right behind him and the coroner right behind them. Even Scotland Yard was represented. Chief Inspector Percy Law was on site as an expert pathologist. When the door was finally pried open, they got a good look at the naked woman sitting in the middle of the room with her back to them. Behind her was something about the same size wrapped in a blanket. Mm. The blanket was knotted to the sitting woman's bra, which was pulled up around her throat. She was wearing only a garter belt and stockings. Her black sweater and white jacket were tangled with her bra around her throat. Damn. The victim was untied and removed to the front room for on-site examination. Right. It was evident that she'd been ligature strangled. Her wrists were tied in front of her with a handkerchief that had been tied into a special knot called a reef knot. Also called a square knot or a Hercules knot. It's a perfect rope mm -hmm. tying for securing hands or anything you need around like an odd-shaped package. Okay. The body was very well preserved. Next, police focused on the wrapped object. It was of course another body. It had been stood on its head and propped against the wall that way. The blanket had been tied with a sock around the ankles again with a reef knot, and the head was wrapped in a pillowcase tied with a sock. Mm -hmm. Searching further, they found a third body. 
This one also upside down with the ankles and neck knotted with electrical cord. Mm. Nothing else was found behind the wallpaper door and the three victims were sent off to the mortuary. Police on site noticed some loose floorboards in the parlor, so they pulled them up and found even more loose rubble. Yep. They shifted around and quickly found another female body. They left the property under tight guard and prepared to come back the next day to tear this place up from nuts yeah. to butts. Yep. Uh, yep. Just, I'm surprised they didn't do that already. They should have done it yep. during Evans's murder investigation. Yep, because once you start putting them and digging them and just... Hey man, did you gotta you thinking like that? I gotta think like that. Yep, I gotta think how you would think. You gotta think of it like a baseball card collector. They're, he's collected them at this point. Yeah, they're everywhere. At the mortuary, three autopsies were performed that night, and these are the results. Number one, female, age twenty, dead around four weeks, died from strangulation and carbon monoxide poisoning. She was under the effects of poisoning when she was strangled with a smooth textured cord. She had been sexually assaulted shortly before or shortly after her death. Scratch marks on the back indicate she was dragged across the floor post-mortem. Victim 2. Female, around 25 years old with light brown hair and poorly manicured hands and feet. Otherwise healthy, she was pinkish in color, a sign of gas poisoning, and was asphyxiated via strangulation. She had sex near the time of her death or after, and had been drinking heavily that day. She died 8 to 12 weeks before time of discovery. Victim 3. Female. Blonde. 25 years old. Poorly manicured. She wore a dress, petticoat, bra, cardigan, two vests, and a piece of material between her legs for some reason. She was pink in color and had been drinking before her death, which occurred 8 to 12 weeks previous. She was 6 months pregnant. That's an odd one. Yes. The fourth body was taken to the morgue the next day. She was much older than the others, in her 50s, plump, and missing several teeth. She'd been rolled up in a flannel blanket and had her head covered with a pillowcase. A silk nightgown and flowered dress were wrapped around the body. She wore stockings all the way up to the knee and had been dead anywhere from 12 to 15 weeks. Unlike the other victims, there was no sign of poisoning or sexual assault. She'd been strangled likely with a ligature. Mm -hmm. It wasn't hard to ID the older woman as Ethel Christie. The others were all prostitutes whom Christie had brought mm. back to his nearly empty apartment after he had killed his wife. Number one was Hectorina McClellan. Number two was Kathleen Maloney. And number three was Rita Nelson. Yeah, the weird one. But it makes sense. They were prostitutes. And if you remember from part one, that's the only people that Christie could have sex with because of his yeah. limp dick. Yeah, they yeah they could deal with it as long as they get their money. So he was also mad at them and hated them that he couldn't do it with real girls. That's fucked up, man. These motherfuckers is here to help you. Yeah, and make you feel they're providing a service about for money. yourself yeah. and everybody else, not just him. You killing good prostitutes. That's it. You're taking them out the rotation. <laughs> yeah, that's fucked up, man. The cops went through all of Ten Rillington, well aware that a double murder had been committed in the third floor apartment. Obviously, the Evanses. In Christie's kitchen, they found a couple of men's ties fastened in reef knots for practice. Mm. They also found potassium cyanide in another room. And strangely, they found a tobacco tin full of clumps of pubes, none of which came from the four victims. Mm. In the back garden, police actually noticed the human femur that was propping up the back fence for once. They broke out the shovels and committed to turning over every square inch of dirt. More bones were found in the flower beds, and blackened, charred skull fragments and teeth were found in a nearby trash can. 
On the right side of the garden, a large amount of hair was found along with some teeth and a newspaper clipping dated all the way back to July 19, 1943. They determined that though only one skull was found, there were two bodies worth of bones in the garden. Hmm. That brought the total to six dead at 10 Rillington. The two skeletons were reconstructed for ID purposes, Mm -hmm. and it was determined that one of them was either Austrian or German based on a tooth crown in her mouth. She was young, maybe 21 or 22, and tall for a lady, around 5'7". The other victim had been between 32 and 35 and had been about 5'2". They'd been in the garden a minimum of three years and a maximum of ten. That's a long time, bro. That's a big gap, too. It is. But that just goes to show you what, if you return a body to the earth, how much that nature can just, like, reclaim it, you know? Mm-hmm. It makes things difficult to tell, especially back in 1950. Yeah, dude, like you said, they found the newspaper clippers. It was also ten years yep. old, yep. right? Yeah, eight, nine. Something like in yep. that area. Okay. Mm-hmm. Damn! In 1939... A young woman named Ruth Marguerite Fürst had moved to England from Austria. She was about 5'8 and went missing from Notting Hill in 1943. The other victim was Muriel Eady, 32, who had worked in a factory with Christie. She was 5'2 and was last seen wearing a black woolen dress, the remains of which they found buried in the garden. Now, the police needed to find Christie. There were always ladies who responded favorably to Christie's advances. In a bar one night, he struck up conversation with 21-year-old Ruth First, tall, Austrian, and full of energy. She'd taken a job in a munitions factory and lived in a one-bedroom apartment not that far from Rillington. There is some circumstantial evidence that she occasionally made ends meet via prostitution. She began visiting Reg while Ethel was away, and Mm -hmm. one day, while the two were laying in bed, Mm -hmm. a telegram came in saying Ethel was on her way home accompanied by her brother. According to Christy, this turned Ruth on, and she undressed and told him to have sex with her right then and there for a thrill. (laughs) Instead, he started strangling her and then had sex with her. He wrapped her in her spotted coat and hid her under the floorboards in the front room. When Ethel and her brother arrived, everything was perfectly normal. The next morning, the brother headed back for Sheffield, and Ethel went to her part-time job. Christy removed the body from the floorboards and placed it in the wash house out back. Mm. He started to dig a grave on the right side of the garden, but just then, Ethel came home. The two had a nice cup of tea together. He waited until she went to bed, and then continued his mission. He placed the dead woman in the hole, covered her up, Went to bed. He was like, Bay, you sleep? Yeah. Sleep? <laughs> Time to play the game. That motherfucker could wait till his wife was asleep. I gotta get back out there and guard yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> the next morning, Reg went out and straightened and raked the dirt. A year later, Ethel went on another Sheffield trip and Christy met another victim. At the end of World War II, when the War Reserve Police were disbanded, Christy mm-hmm. got a job with Ultra Radio Works in nearby Acton. It wasn't long until Reg started getting real flirty with his second victim, 32-year-old Muriel Eady. Mm-hmm. She lived with her aunt and had a steady boyfriend. The Christies often had tea with Muriel and her beau, and once, the two couples even double-dated to the movies. This dude, he was using his powers for bed. Man. Hell yeah. Because if you could feel, I feel like if you could talk to a female and get him to talk to you back, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. So he needed to use that to hook other guys up that couldn't do that. Like wingman it? Yeah. Like help your buddies out. They yeah. can't do what you could do. Can just like get the door open. Yeah. Get them talking. Yeah, That's bro. step one. Yeah, for real. Did that, it did, because he always got them, seemed like to me. Yeah, honestly. At least the victims. Honestly. He's just a sick puppy. He, yeah, he had a good mouthpiece. Yes. 
It, the dick just didn't work. Yes. It's too bad, man. Yeah, this guy could flirt like none yeah. other. And he got super pissed when they would flirt back with him. Like, it made him angry. That sounds... Because it made him think of his sisters who used to, like, you flirt. be flirty oh. and then fuck him up. So and... what you want him to do? Like... This guy just needs to be destroyed. He needs to be taken away so and destroyed. So it's like, if you don't flirt back, then you're good. Yeah. He hated the women that flirted back. Yeah. So he like, what they say, you play them hard, they play hard to get... Yeah. Well, he didn't want the one. He didn't he, want the dude, payoff. Was, yeah, he was fucked. He I, didn't want the hard to get payoff. He he got pissed when that happened. He'd go one way, did switch up on you. Terrible. Yeah, bro. I don't get it. That's not sound. That's, That's not mentally sound. Because don't you want him to flirt back? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So that way you can kiss them and stuff. Well, because they go flirt with people that they like too, though. That's they the just way it not, works. Women just don't flirt with anybody. Why would they? They're not dudes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess a dude would cut. I got, I got. There's a couple guys at my work that will literally flirt, flirt with anything. anything that has a heartbeat. That's fuck. <laughs> Christy decided to lure Muriel over to mm-hmm. his place so he could repeat what he'd done to Ruth. He mm-hmm. later confessed, "I had it all planned out very carefully." In October 1944, Ethel went again to Sheffield, and Reg called Muriel over to help her clean up the infection in her mucous membrane. She came alone. This time, he wanted to avoid any kind of struggle, so he told her he'd prepared an inhaler that would clear up the infection right away. Okay. He had a jar filled with liquid and two hoses running through it. One was hooked up to gas and bubbled through the liquid, and the other hose didn't actually touch the liquid, but was hooked up to another pump with fragrance to hide the gas smell. According to his writings later, Christie would first give the victim a cup of tea and then have them sit in his special kitchen chair with a scarf around their head as they used his weird nebulizer. As Muriel inhaled straight carbon monoxide for about a minute, she lost motor functions, making it easy for Christie to tie a stocking tight around her throat and have sex with her while she died. He put Muriel in the washhouse and dug her resting place in his garden. Much later, while digging in his garden, he found that broken femur, and that was the one he used to prop up his sagging <laughs> back fence. A lot of authors believe Christie was a necrophile. Still others claim all of the sexual activity took place pre-death. Personally, I think he was a necrophile, mm-hmm. because he needed to keep the bodies within arm's reach after he killed them. Necrophilia has three distinct variations. There's violent, fantasy, and romantic. The violent variant has a compulsive need to be near a corpse, so they kill to achieve this. They may keep the corpse to have sex with it multiple times, or go visit the dumping site to masturbate and relive the experience. Fantasy variants make death a central point of their erotic imagery, and often ask their partners to play dead during sex and take pics of them, looking like a corpse, to masturbate to later. The romantic types form such a strong bond with their victims that they keep them around for a long time. They may not ever touch them again, but they need their victim's presence. In this case, it doesn't even matter if Reg had raped the bodies or the dying women. Just him needing the corpses that close makes him a romantic necrophile. Definitely all three. He's that that guy, a necrophilia. Except for the compulsive part. That part's not true. He wasn't compulsive. They were all planned. You know, Mm -hmm. it's nothing spur of the moment, drop of a hat. Dying women excited Reg. There was no doubt. Perhaps it goes back to his childhood with his sisters constantly emasculating him. Or the girls who called him Reggie No Dick or Can't Make It Christy when he was a teen. No matter what it was, killing finally made him feel like a man in control and put him into a peace and tranquility unmatched by even the most devout monk. I got another thing. Necrophiliacs, you said he was a compulsive. Mm. If it's unplanned, the bodies wouldn't be at his house. 
he would have a digging site some or, or he would have a dumping just, ground yeah or, or just leave dump them. but yeah, with leave. necrophiles they he want to have them. okay that even okay Unless he knew where they were, yeah. But you, but arms length though. Arms length. Okay. Well, he yeah, wanted them he, close. Yeah. He was a fantasy slash romantic necrophile. Mm-hmm. One of our very early episodes that I did mm-hmm. with Cody Dennis Nielsen. He was also a romantic necrophile. He would mm-hmm. like wash the bodies. He would keep them for weeks at a time. Just have them sitting in his chair watching TV with them and stuff. Then wash them and take yeah, take them in a bath. Yep, clipping their nails, all that stuff, combing their hair. They still go stink though. Oh yeah. The weird tint of pubes indicated a perversion on another level. Christy yeah. would need to be captured before any sense would be made of it. On March 20th, 1953, Reg booked a room at King's Cross Ranton Home using his real name and address. He yeah. reserved the room for a full week, but only stayed for four. It's likely during this time is when he found out about the nationwide manhunt for him <laughs> and decided this wasn't the best place to be. Mm-mm. His name was on the front page of every paper. A photo of him in a raincoat surfaced and was circulated everywhere along with a full description. Christie traded coats with a homeless man. Later, he would say he was simply wandering around in a fugue state, but having the forethought to switch coats absolutely disproves that. Switching, switching coats, the old switcheroo. The old trade with a bum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they did that in The Wire. Randy did yeah. that in The Wire, I think. Yeah. Or no, not Randy. <laughs> no, nah, but you, they uh, did do it to the, the dude that stole the car. Donut. Yeah. Yeah, donut. Still broke his fucking fingers. Hell yeah. Fuck that dude, too. Uh, Officer. Yeah, dude. It's not Tillman. That's the name of the school. I can't remember his Fuck name. Fuck him. Yep. <laughs> he got his. Yeah, he did. As Christie quickly ran out of money, he would take naps on benches and in movie theaters. Ooh. On the last day of March, Christie wandered down to the banks of the Thames. He'd been homeless for 10 days. Here, an officer spotted him and asked for ID. Christie gave him a fake name and address, saying he left his ID at home. Mm-hmm. The officer asked him to please remove his cap. And that's when he saw everything he needed. Yeah, bro. The high, strange, balding forehead had become the Moby Dick of every officer in London. Get your ass on the ground, man. Yep. (laughs) In his pockets were his ID, ration card, union card, a stolen ambulance badge, and super strangely, an old newspaper clipping about the arrest of Timothy Evans with an explanation of his crimes. Well, if I get the heat, MacGyver and shit. Ooh. All that shit, those pockets and shit. Ooh. Badges. Like, dude, what were you trying to do? Get out of here, Ethan yeah. Hunt. <laughs> Ethan Hunt. Dude, this dude. Down at the Putney police station, uh-huh. Christie readily admitted to four of the murders. Mm-hmm. He hinted that there was something he couldn't quite remember, most likely probing to see if police had found the two skeletons in the garden before admitting to them. He explained Ethel's death as him being awakened by her. She was moving, thrashing around in the bed. When he looked over, her face was blue and she was choking. It was too late to call an ambulance, and he tried and failed to make her stop choking. When he couldn't bear to see his poor wife suffer and choke any longer, he strangled her with a stocking to put her out of her misery. <laughs> he strangled her some more. Looking around the bed, he found a bottle of phenobarbitone tablets that was nearly empty. He said he thought she'd taken them to kill herself. She'd been deeply depressed ever since the Jamaicans moved in upstairs. <laughs> they ain't gonna make you kill yourself, dude. He said he left Ethel in their bed for three days until he remembered the loose floorboards in the front room. Mm-hmm. He wrapped her in a blanket and placed her there to keep her near him. Christy claimed the other three women were also not his fault. Since they were hookers and were untrustworthy, he said they attacked him first. And he just did what he had to do to defend himself as a virtuous man. Mm-hmm. Victim Rita Nelson allegedly demanded money from Christy in the street. He said Rita threatened to scream and accuse him of assault if he didn't give her 30 shillings. 
turned around and started walking back to his place. She was hot on his heels. She forced herself in his door Mm -hmm. and grabbed a frying pan. The two struggled, and she ended up falling backwards into a kitchen chair, which, strangely, already had a rope around it. (laughs) Reg said he then blacked out, and when he came to, she was strangled. He left her there, had a quick cup of tea, then hit the hay for the evening. When he woke up the next morning, he said, I thought it was maybe just a nightmare, but when he walked down, realized she was still sitting at the table. So he wrapped her up, put a diaper on her, and placed her in the cupboard. Ludovic Kennedy, the author of 10 Rillington Place, does not believe this story in the slightest. Nor should any of us. Kennedy thinks it happened more like this. Christy met the six-month pregnant Rita at a bar and offered to abort her with his extensive medical training. Then, gassed, killed, and raped her. Mm-hmm. Christy's second victim was Kathleen Mahoney. Reg had hired her services as a prostitute several times, and just three weeks previous, he'd taken nude pics of her and another prostitute in a hotel room. Christy bumped into Kathleen at a small cafe in Notting Hill and joined the table she was sharing with her friend. They were trying to find an apartment. Kathleen was a mother of five from five unknown fathers, Mm -hmm. and that night she went home with Christy and was never seen again. Christy claimed that Kathleen made sexual advances towards him so that he would use his influence with the landlord to get her an apartment. He said she grabbed a knife off the counter when he said no, and from there, he blacked out again. He had no memory of killing her. Well, that's weird and totally unbelievable, as she was killed using the complex gas contraption, (laughs) tied to a chair, then strangled with a rope. He had sex with the corpse, diapered her, and went on up to bed. That kind of kill is not a blackout insanity killing. No, seriously, you ain't even going to the police after none of this shit, neither. Well, how could he? He would be seen as the suspect, even though he, uh, even though they attacked him. Mm. I mean, he's innocent. Yeah, he's innocent. He's innocent. He's innocent. I tell you, no, dude, just like in the Timothy Evans dude. case when he when he kept telling all those stories about mm-hmm. how he was trying to save her and rescue her because she mm-hmm. had taken too many pills to abort the baby. No, they got you now, bro. Yeah, no amount of wriggling yeah, is going to get you they, out from under this. Your house. Yo garden, yo femur. Your femur? Yeah. Well, Muriel's femur. Yeah, but you got it out of there. Damn right he did. <laughs> yo- and that, did you hear? They only found one skull. This is the other one he threw into that bombed out apartment last week when they were looking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right over there. <laughs> oh, shit. I hate Christy so fucking much. Yeah, this is just like just just admit it, dude. Yeah, <laughs> you killed these. Motherfuckers. It's already you're already gonna swing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you killed them, bro. Just say it. Just say it. I guess he just don't want to. There's always a possibility that Christy could be lying. The next morning, he enjoyed his morning tea with Kathleen's body sitting across the table from him. He wrapped her in a blanket, tied a pillowcase around her head, put her in the cupboard with her legs propped against the back wall. Mm-hmm. He sprinkled some dirt and ash on her, and then closed it up. Mrs. Margaret Forrest met Christy and then listened to him brag about his medical expertise. She was so impressed, she made an appointment to try his treatment for migraines. Hmm. But when she heard it involved gas, she got a little skeeved yeah. out. I don't even know why these motherfuckers even believe in him about this medical shit. He was a war reserve police officer. I wouldn't trust this dude for nothing. He was bro. a hero in World War so, I. So he's using that to his advantage. Always. That's the first thing to come out as well. Well, you know, he probably, he probably had the picture of him in uniform that he loved showing around so much because he thought it made him look amazing. This dude was a fucking liar, bro. A good one. He's an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. He, yeah you could throw yeah. that in there too. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Christy was 
furious when Mrs. Margaret didn't show up, and he went looking for her. When he found her, he insisted that she come by his place immediately. He was going to go. She better be right behind him. She was actually on her way, but had lost the address, fortunately <laughs> for her. She was a near-miss victim. Yeah, hey, watch it, eh? <laughs> she wasn't fit to go to that motherfucking place. Christie's statement about Hectorina McClellan indicated that she and her boyfriend were hard up for a place to stay, so he invited them to stay with him. The three of them bunked in the stinky, uncomfortable, unfurnished apartment for a few days. In one of Christie's confessions, he says that the living situation became too uncomfortable for him, so he asked them to leave. The next night, Hectorina came back to the apartment, threatening him that he needed to let her and her BF back in, or else she'd burn the whole place down. <laughs> when Christie went to grab Hectorina and forcefully remove her, some of her clothing tore and she fell awkwardly, and now she wasn't breathing. Christie pulled Hectorina into the kitchen, sat her on a chair, hoping that maybe sitting up would get some air flowing back <laughs> in her lungs. It didn't work, so he figured, eh, I might as well just pop her in the cupboard with all the others. Yeah. That seems believable, right? Yeah, it does. Whatever, Christy. In a more true version of uh, one Thank of Christy's you. confessions regarding Hectorina. Thank you, bro. While her boyfriend was at the unemployment office looking for work, Christy poured her a cup of tea and activated the gas device near her. She started to get drowsy and made her way to leave, but she was sluggish and he caught up easily. He says, I seized her in the hole and applied just enough pressure to make her limp. I took her back to the kitchen and found it necessary to gas her again. Mm -hmm. Then I made love to her and put her in the chair. I killed her. He wanted to keep her in a sitting position. He accomplished this by hooking her bra around the blanket that was tying Mahoney's legs. Mm -hmm. When Hectorina's BF came back from the unemployment office, Christy denied having seen her, but invited him in for a cup and to look around. He seemed satisfied, but the place smelled terrible, and he left without further question. <laughs> that's what he left. I wouldn't drink that tea. I'd go, yeah. Because smell didn't. and taste are yeah, so like, linked, it's in, unbelievable. You, probably because the holes are like... Your appetite wouldn't even let you drink As it. close as like your pee hole and your butthole are, but on your face. No, I'm not drinking it. Not drinking it? Well, obviously, this dude didn't. Yeah, I don't think so. I think he just left. You want a cup? <laughs> not in here. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I've, I don't know what dead bodies smell like, but I can't imagine it smells good. I have to imagine that evolutionarily, mm -hmm. we are automatically repulsed by that smell. You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> like, as humans that have done this for years and years, we know that dead bodies, uh, I they, definitely they attract dead disease. rodents before, and that shit stinks. Dead so rodents smell dead, bad. Dead body, yeah. Several doctors and psychiatrists examined Christie at Brixton Prison. Mm. It was unanimous. All of them came away with a severe dislike for Reg. They found him nauseating and sniveling, and they hated the way he would whisper answers to their questions he didn't like. He also talked about himself in the third person, trying to distance himself from his crimes. While in Brixton awaiting trial, Christie bragged to other inmates. He liked to compare himself to the acid bath killer, John George Hay, hmm. who had also killed six women in Britain, Christie was disappointed, as he wanted to get it up to 12. Mm. Finally, Christie was presented with direct evidence of his first two kills buried in the garden. Mm. He readily admitted to both. But when things turned to Beryl and Geraldine Evans, he vehemently denied it. Mm, I wonder why. At first. Oh, okay. <laughs> At first. <laughs> <laughs> then he walked it back, saying he killed Beryl as a mercy only, but definitely did not kill Geraldine. 
You see, Beryl had tried to kill herself with gas, and when Christy rescued her, she begged him to help her finish the job, refusing to take no for an answer. He reluctantly agreed to gas and strangle her as a favor. <laughs> I got you. There are a lot of problems with this confession. Holding the gas that close to her would have affected him as well, and none of the details about his supposed rescue are supported by any medical evidence, including that she took too many uh, abortion pills, she had already tried to gas herself, None of that is uh, verifiable at all with evidence. No. no. Christy claimed Beryl offered him sex in exchange for his help, but he was unable to perform due to the gravity of situation. <laughs> he later said to a prison chaplain that he personally didn't think he'd murdered Beryl, but he got the strong impression from his lawyer that for the insanity defense to work, he needed to admit to as many murders as he could. As for the tobacco tin full of pubes, all Christy would admit to was that one clump was from Beryl. Her body was exhumed for comparison, but none of her hair was missing. The tin of pubes' original owners will remain a timeless mystery. Mm, they probably won't uncover that shit. Christy stood trial in the same courthouse where Tim Evans had been tried, the Old Bailey, on June 22, 1953, on the charge of murdering his wife, Ethel. Judge Finnamore presided and the prosecuting attorney was Sir Lionel Heald. Derek mm. Cuttis Bennett defended Christie, who entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. Mm. Defense attorney Bennett was actually the one to bring up all the other murders before the court to prove how crazy Christie was. Mm. Bennett even went so far as to call his own client a maniacal madman. A psychiatrist for the defense confirmed on the stand, he said Christie was a severe hysteric who may have known what he was doing as he was murdering, but was unable to recognize it as the wrong thing to do. Mm -mm. He knew it was wrong. The prosecution's case was pretty buff, and they had two professionals come up for rebuttal. They agreed that Christie was certainly hysterical, <laughs> but that was a neurosis, not a real mental defect with mm -hmm. the reasoning center of the brain. Mm -hmm. Christie was not insane. He suffered from inadequate personality disorder with hysterical features. That's not enough to get you off mm -hmm. of murder. Prosecutor Heald made the always convincing case to the jury that no insane person in all of history had done so many things to cover their tracks. It was very clear that Christie knew he was doing wrong. When Christie himself took the stand, he seemed agitated. He kept pulling his ear, folding and unfolding his hands, rubbing his face, and yanking on his collar. He gave a murder-by-murder -murder breakdown of his crimes, but many of his answers were croaked out and inaudible. When Heald asked him why, in his multiple confessions to police, he'd left Beryl off of his kill list, he replied he'd just plumb forgot about it. It had gone clean out of his head, even though he'd given testimony at her husband's trial not even four years previous. <laughs> Prosecutor Sir Heald's closing arguments boiled down to this. If Christie was to be considered insane, his murders would have had to have been compulsive. Mm. As in, he would do them even in the presence mm. of a police officer. Yep. Christie himself admitted on the stand under oath that he would not have done them in front of a cop. His logic had a definitive through line for every single victim, mm. and he knew exactly what he was doing. Bennett begged the jury to consider the heinousness of his client's crimes and implored them to see themselves committing these crimes. Rational people like you and me would never Do consider it. doing these things, no. like fucking dead and dying women, no. keeping a collection of pubes, and living, sleeping, and eating mm -hmm. among corpses. Gas a motherfucker with carbon monoxide. That's Therefore, great. his client must be insane. <laughs> Therefore, yeah, you're right. 
The judge didn't buy this no. as an adequate test of insanity. He right. told the jury to ignore all that bullshit Bennett just said <laughs> and to focus on the testimony and the evidence to determine if Christie was insane when he killed his wife, <laughs> Ethel. That was all that was on trial. The fact that he was a pervert and acted like a monster did not make him legally insane. Right. The trial only lasted four days, and the jury only needed an hour 20 to deliberate. Guilty. Sentenced to die. Christie never appealed, and his sentence was carried out by hanging at Pentonville Prison Dude, on July hanging? 15, 1953. But things were far from over. The fucking hanging, bro? Ain't they hung? Yeah, that's how they got Evans. Mm. That's how they were going to kill the Peaky Blinders. But then they got a stay of execution from Winston Churchill himself. You should watch Peaky Blinders. It's pretty With good. FX? No, it's Netflix. Netflix. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why I thought this show was on... Uh... Because it looks like it. It's like dark and gritty. Okay. After Christie's trial, Parliament ordered two inquiries to determine whether or not Timothy Evans had been sent to the gallows as an innocent and low-functioning man. Right. It seems statistically impossible that two stranglers were separately living in the same three-unit apartment. Evans had even accused Christie of killing his wife, and at his own trial, Christie had confessed to it. But Timothy, at the time, was not on trial for killing his wife. He was only on trial for killing baby Geraldine. Mm -hmm. But testimony about his wife's murder was allowed at the trial. Mm -hmm. John Scott Henderson was assigned the task to dig deep into the case and determine if justice had been served. He was given just 11 days to examine all evidence, read documents, and compile a report with a determination. Henderson determined that Evans did indeed murder his wife and baby. His report was published on the day Christie hanged, and harsh debate and backlash followed. The majority of people disagreed with the Henderson report. Two years later, a group consisting of the four most respected press editors in London showed up at Parliament demanding another inquiry. Mm -hmm. They believed wholeheartedly that Evans was innocent and his civil rights had been violated. This inquiry would show that the Henderson report was full of absolute shit. It was unearthed that when Henderson interviewed Christie to make his job easier, Henderson coached mm. Christie on exactly what to say, yeah. especially avoiding talking about baby Geraldine at all. It is easy to make Evans look like, to roll him up and all in that. Especially when yeah. your key witness is going to hang before yeah. the report's published. So you can't verify, you can't go back mm -hmm. and verify that. Yeah. You just have to take this as the word of God. Yeah. Another big, if true, accusation surfaced as a result of the press inquiry. Mm -hmm. The police officers involved with Timothy Evans' arrest asked Henderson to please cover for them in their report. The Henderson report, as it turns out, wasn't an independent investigation at all, just mm -hmm. the official version of the story designed to mislead the public into believing that justice was 100% carried out. Bernard Gillis, the attorney representing the interests of Evans' mother, had one burning question which he'd been barred from asking for months. Was Beryl Evans sexually penetrated after her death? Evans would not have done that, but Christie's fucked up self certainly would have. Yep. Gillis also says interrogations went on much longer than officially reported for Evans, which strongly points to bullying a false confession out of a mentally impaired man. Yep. The standard version of the case, as it's referred to, goes like this. Police bungled their jobs, and an innocent man was hanged. Evans was under Christie's dominance completely. Christie offered to abort Beryl's baby as a cover for what he actually wanted to do. Mm -hmm. She agreed to let him help. He went up, gassed her, raped her, and strangled yeah. her. When Tim got home and found his wife, Christie convinced him not to go to the cops, 
and two days later, Christie strangled Geraldine. Christie urged Evans to sell his furniture and flee, which he did, but then went to police in Merthyr Vale. Officers beat a confession out of him, which confused him and made him act strangely in trial. If the two skeletons in the garden had been discovered before Tim's trial, things would have turned out much differently. Henderson would go on to release a supplemental update to the Henderson report defending why he rushed certain things or left others out. He was completely discredited. Nobody, he never worked again in this field. And they de- definitely did fuck dude civil rights up to Oh, yeah. You can't just beat on him for a confession, bro. Well, you know who agreed with that? <laughs> High Court Judge Sir Daniel Braben, who granted a posthumous pardon for Tim Evans in 1966. Mm. This didn't proclaim him innocent. But did indeed clear his name of the crime for which he was hanged. It's very doubtful the whole truth will ever surface on this one. That's fucked up, bro. So, he wasn't proclaimed innocent, but he was proclaimed innocent of not killing baby Geraldine. Mm -hmm. But they never found out if his wife was fucked. No. Kristen definitely would have fucked her, bro. Because that was his thing. Yep. You're You're not going to die around him and ain't get fucked. That's how it goes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this dude, if you die around him, you're going to be diapered and fucked. Man. Well, that's the case of uh, 10 Rillington Place, Herschel. Uh, Tim Evans, hanged for no reason. Gas chambers and shit, man. That's crazy. Christy, hanged for only one of the six, seven reasons he should have been. Mm-hmm. But he should have only, only for the murder of his wife, Ethel. But the hanging, man, believe it or not, man, he served justice. That was the justice. hangman? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's justice being served. He did it. Although they only hung up for that one, that's uh, that's karma, bro. He needed to be destroyed. Yeah. Like, he can't be out there. Yeah. He can't, because he's just going to keep doing that. Prison's not going to help. Like, bodies keep falling around you, bro. Like, and you just keep saying, everybody attacking you. Everybody attacking you. But you kill them because they attacked you in self-defense. And yeah. with self-defense, why do you just come to us about it? Yeah. And how are you so unlucky that all mm-hmm. these hookers just yeah. keep attacking you? Yeah, attacking you. You're you. You, you doing something to them. It's pretty like, crazy. It's pretty crazy. You're like a hooker magnet. Because you know we ain't really going to give a fuck about hookers and you killing them. Easy to get away with. Mm-hmm. Because I wouldn't even imagine back then, even in where they were at, they still don't like prostitutes. I'd agree with that. Well, listen, everybody, that is the story of uh, mm-hmm. Reginald Christie. Reginald fucking Christie. He's a real piece of fuck. He's a real shit of dick. Was. I hate him. I'm glad he's dead. Yeah, well, he got he got what's right. That baby, man. And that's going to do it for all of us here at the Bumblebutt yeah, Podcast X. X, 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 X. My name has been Adam. A-bomb. That's my Herschel. H-bomb. We appreciate you stopping by, yeah, everyone. We, we appreciate you listening. We do. I, I really do like it when I see the downloads go up he and just, I see people commenting and emailing. It's, it's good stuff. He does, man. He's jizzing all over the keyboard. I am. You see? So. I had to put uh, plastic tarps down yeah. over all the electronics. <laughs> they just keep coming. Okay. Yeah. Well, listen, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time, all right? For real. Goodbye. My boy.